Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who is off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. CNN streaming service was soundly rejected by news consumers and metaphorically at least shut its doors after a disappointing three weeks and $300 million wasted. Also, Venezuela celebrates its 20th anniversary of defeating a U.S. coup attempt and Russia continues its special military operation in Ukraine. Joining us to discuss this, we have Caleb Maupin. He's a journalist and political analyst and friend of the show. Caleb, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. Before we get started, Caleb, I always like to uh, ask you to let our uh, listeners know about your very uh, about your think tank and uh, what, what what how they can find out more about it and what what you what it is you're trying to accomplish. Sure, I'm with the Center for Political Innovation. Our website is cpiusa.org, all one word, cpiusa.org. Uh, we are a think tank dedicated dedicated to building a United States beyond the rule of profits. Uh, we love the country. Uh, And we want to save the United States from capitalism and imperialism and build a new society where the interests of working people comes first, not the profits of a wealthy few. Uh, And we're looking to develop policy solutions toward that end. Um, So, yeah, you can check us out. Oh, wonderful. CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, has officially pulled the plug on the premium streaming service. CNN plus Thursday's announcement came as... Quote, total and utter shock to employees of the service, eh, the rest of us not so much, which has reportedly already spent $300 million to hire top corporate media talent. I think we just found a problem there. Top corporate media talent. Launch and advertised with another $700 million in investments planned. Oh, boy. Uh, let's start there. Oh, here's a number. Here's a number, Caleb. They, it says the service attracted as many as 150,000 subscribers in the first couple of weeks, according to some reports, though others said a mere 10,000 people tuned in on a daily basis. This morning, Caleb, I was watching an, a YouTube show, The Duran, one of my favorites with Alexander Mercoris. They had 10,000 people on a YouTube show. <laughs> so anyway, let's talk about CNN Plus that uh, bit the dust after just uh, 21 days. Your thoughts, Caleb? Well, I mean, it's simply a question of mathematics. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking $300 million, uh, 150,000 subscribers. Uh, that's quite a bit per subscriber uh, that they're paying. Uh, you know, it just doesn't doesn't work out quite well. And if only 10,000 people were watching, you mentioned there were more people watching the Duran. Look, if you look at the ratings, since Donald Trump has left office, CNN's ratings have just tanked. Um, So at this point, uh, Americans don't even really want to watch regular CNN. Why would they want CNN plus? Uh, You know, you have to ask yourself that. And uh, I mean, the problem with CNN is that it's gotten like a lot of media in the United States, just like Disney, uh, just like other outlets and Netflix, it's gotten to be so ideological. It's not telling people what they want to hear. It's not giving people just the facts. It's pushing the woke party line. Uh, and people hear that everywhere anyway. They don't really want to hear that. And they're not going to pay extra to hear that. Um, so, yeah, CNN Plus uh, has bit the dust. Um, but CNN will remain. Um it's funny because CNN is basically the U.S. government state-sponsored network, even though it's private, right? It's in all the airports, and you know it's treated as as the U.S. government outlet, even though 
PBS, I guess, gets government funding. Not many people watch PBS. Uh, and CNN is basically uh, the state media outlet of the United States. It's just not called that. Um, it's, you know, propped up by by the U.S. power structure, and it's shown everywhere, and it pushes the U.S. government line. Anderson Cooper admits that the way he got his job at CNN was he worked for the CIA first. Uh, when he was in college, he went and started working for the CIA, and they helped connect him with CNN. He admitted that in the Washington Post in an interview he gave. So, uh, you know, we know what CNN is, but they don't label it as U.S. government-affiliated media because uh, that's not how things work in the United States. But, you know, if they were being fair, they would. Another thought on that. You know, I've heard people say, well, they're just, you know, they're, it's all about ratings and money. I disagree. If I were running CNN and I wanted money, I'd hire Joe Rogan. I'd hire people. If you look at what's happening now, the number one person out there is is Tucker Carlson. Now, Tucker, I disagree with him on a lot of that libertarian stuff, but he will bring some anti-war voices on. He will bring some YouTubers on. He will bring some on. I certainly appreciate that. And the success that he's having, if it were truly about money. Wouldn't they be saying, well, let's see who's out there in alternative media that's really burning it up. We'll bring them on on a regular basis. Jimmy Dore, Caleb Maupin, whoever the case may be. Instead, to me, it's clear that it's not about money. It's about, well, let me let me say this. Within an Overton window of the narrative that they're allowed to talk about, they're going to try to make money. But outside of that Overton window, it ain't about money. What do you think? What do you think, Caleb? Sure. Um, you know, Fox, part of the reason they've always been hated, even when they were very much in with the Bush administration and were pushing the neocon line back in the years following 9-11, uh, even then they were hated because they were very much a money-making outlet and they didn't play by the same rules that the established outlets followed. Fox News is quite new. You know, Fox News Channel became kind of a new new network. It started in like the late 90s, I believe. And uh, they they got going and they were, they were more about making money and they were less about following the script. Um, and that led to them having very high ratings. Um, and it also led to them occasionally doing weird things, you know, I mean, there, there was a segment, um, that, uh, where, where, I mean, well, we could talk about many weird things they've done over the years and that's why they've been hated. And now, uh, that the mainstream current is very much pushing the democratic party and is very much pushing this kind of woke politically correct narrative. Now Fox, because they don't play by the rules is having people like Max Blumenthal on the Tucker Carlson show. Uh, you know, they'll have uh, different different perspectives on there. Uh, they'll bring on Chris Smalls, the uh, union organizer uh, who, who, you know, successfully organized a, a union at the Staten Island, uh, you know, Amazon warehouse. Uh, and they're facing yet another election uh, because of the contested results. And and and, you know, again, because, you know, Fox News is not playing 100 percent by the mainstream media script. They're a little bit more of a try an attempt at a money making wild card. Uh, they are going to do things a little bit differently. Um, and so occasionally, despite the fact that they're so right wing generally and that, that they have a history of just kind of being a neocon outlet, uh, they will they will allow a wider variety of perspectives on. And that's certainly in some ways an opening for those of us who are opposed to capitalism and war and imperialism. 
at least a little bit every now and then is better than nothing. Um, all right. And here's an important story, I think. Venezuela commemorates the 20th anniversary of the failed coup against Hugo Chavez. The failed coup was the first victory of the Venezuelan people against U.S. imperialism in the 21st century. It marked the beginning of the resistance of Venezuelans against the U.S. attacks, which continue to this day. That's in one of my, a great, let me uh, recommend, Orinoco Tribune. It's a very good, uh, very, very good uh, online media outlet. Venezuela, your thoughts, Caleb? Well, there's a great documentary called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised that shows that coup and shows the way media manipulation was used. And yeah, Hugo Chavez was the new president of Venezuela. He came into office in 1999, uh, and there were mudslides. And Chavez came out of the military. And uh, so as, as these mudslides were affecting communities, he got on television and whipped up a spirit of patriotic fervor, and he sent the military to help with the people with the mudslides. And he mobilized people in the country to provide relief to the people affected by the mudslides. And it was a moment in Venezuelan history where people were like, there's something special about this guy. Never have we had a president who was like this, right? You know, he's on TV urging us to help our country. He's sending the military not to break strikes or put people down, but he's instead sending the military to help people. The army is, is rescuing these people from the mudslides and he's organizing these, these, these circles and neighborhoods to help with the mudslides. We like this guy. And so then when he came out and he said, I want to pass a new constitution that's going to be more democratic, uh, the country overwhelmingly voted for it. Uh, and so Chavez was quite a popular president because he was doing things that other presidents hadn't done. So then when the USA invaded Afghanistan, uh, he appeared on national television and he said 9-11 was awful, but it doesn't justify uh, it doesn't justify this. And he showed pictures of Afghan children who've been blown up by U.S. Uh, U.S. bombs. And he said, look, you know, the Taliban wanted to hand over bin Laden and the USA said no and invaded anyway. So this isn't really about 9-11. And he said that on TV. And you can you can bet that, you know, the Pentagon was not thrilled with that. Um, and then he talked about, you know, using Venezuela's oil resources for the benefit of the country. Um, and then we saw this military coup attempt against him. And there was fake news in the media claiming that his supporters had been shooting at people, that there had been snipers or something like that. It was very similar to some of the fake news we saw about Ukraine. Uh, he was kidnapped, but then it was the soldiers, the rank-and-file soldiers that rose up and rescued him from the coup. And he was back in power a week after he'd been removed. Um, and that was a, that was a big moment. Um, and it's important to note that Hugo Chavez, at the time that that, that had happened, the, the coup attempt of 2002 had happened, uh, Hugo Chavez said he didn't believe in socialism. He said he was for neither socialism or capitalism. He was for the third way and what was best for Venezuela, and his hero was Simon Bolivar, the liberator. But it was a year after that coup. Uh, that he actually came out and he said, you know, I think socialism is the only way we can save Venezuela. And part of the reason Chavez, you know, drifted that way was because of the fact that uh, the Communist Party and the labor movement and the working class, uh, they were so key in uh, enabling enabling them to defeat that coup, uh, that he'd come into office with kind of a coalition that included a lot of big business people who didn't like the IMF and the World Bank and their reforms, included small business owners. But, but the, because the labor movement was so key in having his back during that coup, that was very important. And then the fact that Venezuela, uh, that Venezuela got so much aid from Cuba and that Cuba sent their medical doctors to start, you know, putting up, you know, medical clinics in, in working class neighborhoods and giving people giving people medical care that, you know, Cuba teamed up with the Venezuelan government to start giving people in Venezuela who'd lost their eyesight as a result of childhood malnutrition or, or poisoning and, and giving people their eyesight back 
uh, you know, that Cuba was so helpful to Chavez in his economic programs uh, that that kind of put Venezuela on the road to socialism. And that was a kind of a big moment. Um, and you have to remember, this was like, this was turning the tide of the 90s. Uh, you know, 1999 was the year Chavez got elected. That's also the year Vladimir Putin was elected. And both Latin America, you know, South America, Central America, as well as Eastern Europe, had just been devastated in the 90s by the fall of the Soviet Union, by neoliberalism, and they, you know, pushing these crazy extreme free market reforms. In Bolivia, they privatized the rainwater. If you collected rainwater on your roof, you were stealing from Nestle and Coca-Cola, private companies in the United States. They'd sold their water to. Uh, in, in Russia, you had, you know, mass hunger and, and you know, 30% unemployment, and it was just a drastic, devastating period economically. And, you know, you had Putin get into power in, in Russia and, and start moving Russia away from the free market and, and towards having state-controlled energy resources and rebuilding their economy. You had Chavez getting elected in Venezuela, and he eventually started Venezuela on the road to Bolivarian socialism. And that, you know, this was kind of a turning point as, the US, as we hit the millennium, as, as they said, uh, you know, about what had gone on for about a decade after the fall of the Soviet Union had been so devastating economically in two very key regions, South America and Eastern Europe, uh, that you started to see the pushback and the blowback. Um, and that, you know, Chavez, you know, coming into office and then defeating that coup 20 years ago, that was a decisive moment, no doubt about it. Let me ask you this. I feel today that the person who kind of has taken that mantle is Evo Morales in the because there's a in the same way that you know the U.S. Empire was able to um, basically coup you uh, Evo Morales and though it was a longer period the movement towards socialism in Bolivia was able to overcome through um, mass social movements to overcome that to. Uh, that coup to um, take their government back and put in the person that they wanted to, to uh, create an environment where Evo Morales could triumphantly come back into his country. And importantly, they are pro they are currently prosecuting the U.S. puppet who was installed during that coup. So what do you think about Evo Morales, me kind of viewing him as the modern day um, Chavez? He's not as loud and boisterous as Chavez, um, but at any rate, your thoughts. Well, I, you know, I think that, that this situation, as you see what develops in Bolivia in the aftermath of the fact there was a coup against Morales, Morales was removed from office, you had the coup plotters, and now, you know, you have the left back voted into office. Uh, he was able to, uh, he was able to uh, you know, return to the country, and now the coup plotters are being persecuted or being prosecuted, I should say. Uh, you know, they, um, that situation really points to the fact that that on the one hand, uh, Evo Morales was a solid, you know, anti-imperialist, and and he was removed and targeted by the United States. Um, and the people who replaced him are more in line with Evo Morales, but I, I would say they're not as radical as Evo Morales was, uh, you know. And on at the same time, the people who removed Evo Morales, uh, they are from the hard right of Latin America. Uh, you know, that these are people that are from the same vein as the Contras of Nicaragua, of Rio Smart, the dictator of Guatemala of the paramilitary forces in Colombia. And there is a feeling on the part of the Obama wing of American politics that those people are wild cards and they're not trustworthy. And uh, we saw under the Obama administration, the United States, you know, I mean, Rios Mont was put on trial 
in Guatemala. Now, obviously, he was, you know, there was a technicality and he never faced any punishment, but he was put on trial for his genocide against the indigenous people and, and uh, you know, and, and, and then, you know, and found guilty, but then, you know, let off on a technicality. And in, in many parts of, of South and Central America, you saw the United States starting to kind of appease the elements that might go over to Bolivarianism and socialism and start to kind of be okay with prosecuting some of these hard right elements that had been allies of the United States, you know, for their crimes, whether it was back in the 80s or even up to today. And that, that the United States increasingly feels like it can't trust these hard right, you know, extreme forces, these paramilitaries, these religious fanatics that they were arming in South and Central America for a long time. And a lot of that has to do with Trump and, and January 6th and the fact that those forces, those forces, while they may be viciously anti-communist, uh, they may not be, you know, totally opposed to doing business with Russia, right? They, they may be a little more self-interested and that there's a bit of a gap between the, the fanatical right of Latin America and uh, the mainstream of U.S. imperialism and, and especially uh, the NATO countries in Europe. So that gap, we're going to have to see how it plays out because largely Russia has been aligned and sympathetic with, you know, the Bolivarians of Venezuela, uh, with, you know, people like Evo Morales and such. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, that, that right wing is increasingly not loyal to the United States and vice versa. The United States seems to be lining up against them um, in different instances. So we're going to have to see how that contradiction plays out. Um, but uh, it's very interesting to see that, that you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's these forces the United States built up. I mean, the Latin American right is very much a product of the United States. Uh, they built it up, they armed them, they backed them, but now they don't trust them, and they fear that some of the, the elements, the dissident elements in the U.S. military, dissident elements in the U.S. deep state uh, that, that were involved with Trump and with January 6th, they fear that some of those elements are therefore connected to the Latin American right, and the Latin American right may not be as trustworthy as they once thought. So there are contradictions uh, within the U.S. camp. It's just kind of an overall symptom of, of the U.S. government apparatus, the U.S. military, the U.S. intelligence agencies kind of being at war with themselves. I mean, there's clearly big divisions behind the scenes uh, in the U.S. power structure, and how that gets resolved is something that remains to be seen. And Latin America is a place that we're going to see some of that play out. Russia is saying their spe special military operation will end once threats to NATO's, uh, to, related to NATO's colonization of Ukraine are eliminated. And they particularly mentioned the, the protection of the peaceful population of Donbass. We've got about two minutes of your thoughts. Well, look, I mean, we want this war to end. I mean, this war is, is ugly and a lot of people have lost their lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, Russia needs to secure the protection of the people of the eastern regions. And that's not being talked about. You know, 16,000 people killed from the shelling, a food blockade. Russia wants to secure uh, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. And I think that's what Russia wants at this point. Uh, you know, Russia would prefer a neutral Ukraine. It was not having NATO weapons piled into it. But at this point, it's about protecting the lives of the people in the eastern regions. Let the, you know, the, the 2.5 million refugees Russia has taken in in the past eight years from those regions go home. Let them go back to see their families. Let them go back to... To, to live in the houses and the villages and the towns they've always grown up in, you know, let the people of Donbass live. And if we can get security for the people of Donbass, I think this conflict can wrap up. And I hope that that's the case because, uh, you know, it's not good for Russia to have, have this, you know, war ongoing. It's not good for Ukraine. Uh, the world, you know, the world largely depends in a lot of ways on Ukraine. I mean, they, they produce so much wheat and they're going to have half of the wheat exports this year. 
uh, as a result of this war going on. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to have half of their wheat come out. There's going to be global food shortages, uh, you know, because Russian fertilizer is not going to be delivered around the world. So it'll be good for the world if this conflict can end soon and the people of Donbass can just be allowed to, to live. Thank you very much. We've been talking to Caleb Maupin. You can find him on Twitter and also, what is that, CPIUSA.org, right? That's right. Center for Political Innovation. Yeah, make sure you check that out. That's a great site. You've been listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The nations and collective people of Africa have a strong case against NATO imperialism. Additionally, Germany is expelling Afghan victims of the NATO attack on its country in favor of Ukrainian refugees. President Biden's poll numbers are trending downward and IMF loans are still victimizing people in the global south. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas. He's an author historian, researcher, and a friend of the show. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start. Uh, Black Agenda Report, one of my favorite uh, websites, I might add, blackagendareport.com, has a, a very interesting article. And it it, it really, um, it, to me, discusses an issue that is critical for people, particularly people of color, understanding the current current crisis in Ukraine, our case against NATO Africans and the struggle of imperial, against imperialism. Your thoughts on this, Dr. Horn? Well, I think that the question many should pose is this. Let us assume hypothetically that NATO prevails. Let's even assume, perish the thought, that they accomplish their ultimate objective. Their ultimate objective being the breakup of Russia. Recall that it was Madeleine Albright, former U.S. Secretary of State, who wondered wondered curiously why it is that Russia controls Siberia, for example. So let us assume that these war aims are attained. And by the way, you have the enhanced and increased eminence of neo-Nazi forces in the Donbass. Can one imagine that this will be a step forward for black people? Can one imagine that uh, this will convince the North Atlantic countries that self-determination for Africa uh, should be pursued? Or can one imagine that the North Atlantic countries will be energized and turbocharged and even might be so bold as to try to turn back the clock with regard to African sovereignty and independence, which, by the way, in historical terms, is of recent vintage. Recall that it was 1960, that was the so-called year of Africa, when you had a number of African countries coming to independence, or 1957, when you had Ghana in West Africa coming to independence. And so I think that one needs to tease out these scenarios and also tease out what it might mean with regard to a defeat for the North Atlantic countries, the weakening of the North Atlantic countries. I dare say that that would be a step forward for African 
independence, Caribbean independence. And I'm wondering what is the problem with that scenario? You know, um, I did want to ask you about this. I've talked to a number of people. I find that in talking to people from the Middle East, friends of mine and contacts in Africa, um, people I know who frequent South America, um, India, etc., I'll be blunt. The people of color around the world, almost universally, do not support NATO and the U.S. empire. Um, I'm not saying they support or support or don't support Russia, but they certainly recognize the history of it that imperialism has had on them. And I find that the only people of color that, sadly, that I find where I can find any level of support in this world are in the United States. And I fault the and I'm going to use the word fault. Those are my words. Um, I fault the black leadership class who seems to have in recent years really um, taken on the task of guiding black people towards imperialist policies that are not in the best interest of black people worldwide. Your thoughts? Well, your point is well taken. However, I should add that black people in the United States are subjected to this incessant propaganda. And also one of the things I've noticed, uh, to your point, is that when you don't use a muscle, it tends to atrophy. And I'm afraid to say that in recent decades, you haven't had that many black intellectuals or black leaders who have been keeping an eye on the international scene. And even, as I pointed out in my book on Southern Africa, when you had a situation pre-Nelson Mandela's election in 1994, where you had some black leaders and intellectuals energized by the anti-apartheid struggle, oftentimes they were not necessarily uh, taking uh, proper positions. Uh, that is to say that uh, you had many who really got tripped up on the Zimbabwe question, uh, after the government of Robert Mugabe moved to engage in land reform, uh, seizing land from the European minority that had been seized illicitly in previous decades, recall that the European minority had roots in South Africa stretching back to 1652, and in Rhodesia, then Zimbabwe, only to about 1945, for most of them, and for none of them hardly before the 1890s. And that led to sanctions by the North Atlantic countries, which are still in place, led by the United States and London. And yet you had many black intellectuals and leaders, many of whom consider themselves to be radical, who wound up supporting sanctions against an African government that was trying to redistribute the wealth. And as a person who has lived through that rather sordid episode, it always struck me that people were just too subject to propaganda. And then, of course, there is the uh, notoriety to be gained. I, I'll never forget during the Zimbabwe crisis how a person who I thought was of the left was being lionized after an appearance on a PBS NewsHour for denouncing uh, the Zimbabwean government. And then, of course, that leads to trips sponsored by the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, other emoluments sponsored by the U.S. Institute for Peace. Uh, there are many uh, tidbits and, and many emoluments that can be gleaned and obtained for those who decide to toe the U.S. line. And so 
ultimately, I, I think it's comprehensible of why people do not necessarily want to go against the ruling class when they decided that there is a foreign policy priority. And certainly this crisis in Ukraine and Eastern Europe is a foreign policy priority, but I would remind one and all that as Mr. Biden busily ships uh, arsenal to Ukraine, and of course uh, this is in the to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, let me remind the audience what I've been stressing all week, which is that the New York Times reported that there is an epidemic of black men dying like flies in the streets of Los Angeles. And that should be a crisis. That should be an emergency that calls for our taxpayers, taxpayers' monies to be used and utilized. Uh, but that is not the case. And perhaps uh, similarly troubling is the fact that the United States rather blithely assumes that it can ship weapons into a war zone and not be just designated as a co-combatant or a co-belligerent, uh, which could then cause the United States or one of its allies, such as Poland or Germany, uh, to be attacked in turn. So this is a very serious crisis. Uh, there are analysts, uh, perhaps more sober than myself, who suggest that we may be on the verge of World War III. However, let us hope that that is an incorrect analysis. I, you know, I think we, 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 there's, a, there's an interesting article for Black Agenda Report that, 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 that actually segues right into what you were talking about because uh, Margaret Kimberly wrote a, wrote, a, uh, wrote a great article, The Ukraine Crisis Can't Save Biden, in which she talks about domestic politics, how um, the, you know, generally, you know, the wag the dog scenarios where the, traditionally um, uh, when U.S., Politicians and presidents feel that they're in trouble. They get involved in some kind of a, a military conflict, and their numbers goes up. But Joe Biden has not has made no attempt um, uh, hold up a, a single campaign pl pledge. That all of his campaign pledges have vanished into, into deep air, in, in, into thin air. And Margaret feels as though that that won't be the case this time, and that uh, the Biden administration and subsequently the Democratic Party are heading for um, a depths un depths unseen in quite a long time. Your thoughts? Well, Margaret Kimberly may have a point. Certainly, I'm rather disappointed that more of the black leadership class and more of the black intellectuals haven't made a point about the disparate treatment of immigrants. That is to say, the allowing of Ukrainian immigrants to jump to the front of the line here in the United States of America, while, as we know, Haitian immigrants are roughhoused and manhandled, I'm disappointed that there hasn't been more focus uh, in black leadership and intellectual circles on how students of African descent are being maltreated and mistreated in Poland after they have escaped uh, from Ukraine. And then uh, there's the wider point, which is that U.S. imperialism continues to support French imperialism, which is the main vampire on the African continent, uh, pumping the lifeblood out of the continent on a regular basis. And yet, 
we rarely hear much about that from the black leadership class, the black intellectual classes, although uh, they will discuss to the cows come home about the purported and alleged depredations of the People's Republic of China on the African continent. China as the new colonizer, for example, is a favorite trope. And apparently blissfully and blithely unaware of the point that ultimately, as we've stressed in recent weeks on this program, China is the ultimate target of this conflict with Russia uh, because China and Russia uh, are united. They have a kind of special relationship, and it was felt that uh, tactically, perhaps even strategically, that weakening Russia should come first, and that in turn would weaken China, the number two economy, uh, rather than going after China first. And so uh, this is a very disturbing turn of events. However, uh, it's, not, it's not too late for those who I pointed the finger of accusation at to make a 180-degree reversal. You know, I think I truly believe that this one of these cons, one of the things that this conflict has done is taken the mask off the racism of the um, the liberal class that Malcolm X talked about, that um, that 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 Dr. King talked about. Here's a there's a new uh, report. It's really uh, in uh, Foreign Policy magazine. Germany is evicting hundreds of Afghans to make way for a large flood of Ukrainian war refugees. In the same way that we see the United States um, mistreat and literally beating Haitian. Uh, re- uh, refugees with whips on the border, reminiscent of of, of, of slavery and cotton fields. We see um, Ukrainian, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Ukrainians welcomed in by the, you know, at least a, a, a start of 100,000 into the U.S. We see the mistreatment on the borders of, um, like, Poland, which would not accept any African or Muslim refugees opening their arms wide to Ukrainian refugees, the mistreatment of people of color, Indian refugees, etc., by the Polish uh, uh, NATO forces, by uh, the Ukrainians. And I think and the, and the 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 liberal class has had neither a word to say about this. Your thoughts on all of this together? Well, I think that there is an old saying amongst Hollywood scriptwriters that the best movies oftentimes involve a scenario whereby crisis or pressure reveals character. That is to say, to illustrate the importance of character to your audience. You place one of your actors in a situation where there's crisis or pressure. And certainly we see that illustrated to a fairly well with regard to what you just outlined. And that is to say the crisis in Central and Eastern Europe has revealed the character of the North Atlantic bloc. And only the naive should be surprised that the character revealed is reeking with the most odious white supremacy. Uh, That should be no surprise to any within range of my voice in these United States of America, a settler colonial regime based upon the genocidal impulse executed against the indigenous population in the first instance to then create space for the kidnapping 
of Africans to work for free for centuries, that legacy has yet to dissipate. It is yet to be overturned. And therefore, we see it being played out once again in 2022 with, as Afra mentioned, you have Ukrainians leapfrogging the line. Indeed, uh, Brett Stevens, the New York Times, pointed out in a column just this week that any Ukrainian should be given a green card, which many uh, African and Haitian migrants into the United States have not been able to obtain, to put it mildly, which allows work in the United States, uh, obtaining of benefits and all the rest. And then in Europe, you see how London, under the maladministration of the clown prince Boris Johnson, has just worked out a deal whereby migrants without proper documentation will be shipped thousands of miles away to Rwanda to be, quote, processed, unquote. Uh, this is mimicking the policy of their former colony, Australia, which also uh, ships migrants uh, offshore to an uncertain fate. And yet, at the same time, you have Australia backed by the United States, which is objecting to a new deal by the Solomon Islands uh, off the northeastern coast of Australia and China, uh, which bespeaks their growing friendship. Supposedly, this is a threat to the territorial integrity of Australia, to peace and security in the Pacific, as the United States sees it, which is one of the reasons they've shipped uh, two of their leading diplomats to the Solomon Islands to protest. And what's interesting is that if you look at the people of the Solomon Islands, uh, they're melanin-rich. Oftentimes, they're referred to as Melanesian. They resemble uh, black people in the United States, which is one of the reasons, it seems to me, they're treated with such contempt uh, by Australia and the United States. And at the same time, that the Australians and their puppet masters in Washington uh, prattle and prate about self-determination of the Ukraine, supposedly they cannot uh, mount a similar sort of argument when it comes to self-determination for the Solomon Islands, uh, which should have the right, it seems to me at least, to work on an agreement with any nation they see fit or deem necessary, just as the United States and Australia tend to do. Uh, yes, I'm with you. It, it really demonstrates the hypocrisy when one country who happens to be loaded with Nazis, um, the argument is made, they, A, that th even if the United States and NATO fills them, loads them with weapons, completely um, uh, trains their army and sets them up as basic, basically a NATO army, um, they are no threat to Russia on Russia's border. But if the Solomon's Islands, a country of dark-skinned people— allows the Chinese to 
just have some kind of a base on there, forget that, no military, no guns, no training, no nothing, then they are a threat to Australia in so many ways. It just kind of, um, this really is a metaphor for the history of the United States and how it, how and, and the U.S. empire and, and, and how it views the rights of, of black people both inside and out. Thanks. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Professor and Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher. He has lots of great books. Let let me recommend his book about Paul Robeson. You can find that wherever books are, uh, are sold, but I will definitely recommend that being a big fan of Paul Robeson. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. As the Biden team claims that Russia is committing war crimes, they continue to persecute Julian Assange for exposing U.S. war crimes in the Middle East. Additionally, former intelligence officials argue that big tech must be protected as a tool for U.S. world hegemony. And the French election could create a major political crisis in the EU. Joining us to discuss these issues, we have Steve Poikinen. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Garland. It's good to be back. And of course, uh, before we go there, you also have a show, a, a show called Slow News Day on Rockfin. Do to, if you could do two things. Number one, tell us, tell our people where they can find your show. And also, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know what Rockfin is. Talk, if you could explain to our listeners what Rockfin is, where they can find it, and why you feel it's a good option as a, as a video platform. Okay, well, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I host Slow News Day. I also host uh, the AM Wake Up with uh, Pasta Jardula from the Combo Couch Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to uh, 10 a.m. Same channel. Uh, and Timer. Uh, Pacific, yeah, yeah, West Coast time, yeah. Sorry, I apologize. Um, and uh, and we are on Rockton, rockton.com slash slow newsday. It's a, a blockchain-based platform uh, that uh, encourages the people who put content out on it to speak their minds, interview whoever they want, have whatever kind of discussion that, that they would like to have um, without, you know, the way that, that YouTube algorithmically blocks certain discussions from taking place or remove entire channels completely uh, from what is effectively the second largest search engine in the world. Um, Rockfin does a, a very, very good job of uh, giving people access to, to content that YouTube has gone out of their way to make hard to find. Um, and, uh, and it's not every channel under the sun. Um, they have a, a, it's a newer platform. They have a handful of different sections um, if, in terms of media or sports or comedy, um, things like that. Uh, and, and yeah, it's fantastic. It is. It's, uh, it's free to sign up. Um, if you want the paywalled content, you endorse one channel and you get all of the paywalled content on the network. So instead of like the Patreon model where you've got to keep giving the individual content creators to get more paywalled stuff, it's the one and done. Um, and yeah, I would encourage people to look into it, check it out, give it a shot. Uh, excellent, excellent. A lot of us who are on YouTube and those of us who watch YouTube are noticing that fewer and fewer of uh, our, of of the, of the YouTube creators that we like are available. They're getting tossed uh, left and right. All right, so let's start with this. 
Julian Assange, the U.S. is, and uh, Caitlin Johnstone, one of my favorites, she has a, 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 a letter, the U.S. cries about war crimes while imprisoning a, imprisoning a journalist, journalist for exposing it's a war crime. Interesting. After, you know, the U.S. went after the International Criminal Court because the, U, the ICC wanted to investigate the U.S. and NATO for war crimes in Afghanistan. And NATO literally said, no, NATO doesn't commit war crimes. And I guess it must be like Nixon. You know, if the president doesn't, it's not a uh, it's not a crime. Your thoughts on this, the hypocrisy here. Right now, they're going after Julian Assange and saying, oh, yeah, by the way, Vladimir Putin's uh, committing for committing war crimes. Well, it's I, the first casualty in every war is true. Right. And and that's that's something that Julian Assange stands in direct opposition to. And if the goal of an empire is to at least sustain the war, if not outright win it, but to keep it perpetuating so that you can justify your empire and your expenditures, treating your own citizens the way that you treat the citizens abroad in order to have your empire in the first place. If you're the person who, who stands for truth, you are immediately in the sights of the people waging the war. Well, it, at that point, and really, if you want to look at the Assange case uh, as kind of, you know, a, a, this in micro, yes, if the president does it, it's, it's not illegal. That's great Nixon reference. But in the Assange case, it's, uh, it doesn't matter if it's currently illegal because we're doing it to Julian Assange for the reasons that we need the international jurisdiction over the press, the protection from ever having to be held reliable or responsible for the mass war crimes, fraud, waste, and abuse we commit all over the world. Then, uh, then uh, we we've got to make sure that that uh, it's a precedent, right? So it's not illegal. It's a precedent. It's just new. It's a new standard that everybody can now follow because we set the precedent. Sure, it was illegal before, but that doesn't matter anymore because now we, the U.S. and the U.K., are the, the arbiters of this new precedent. So it's now legal. You make a good point because one could look at it as, well, they're trying to skate around international law. They're trying to go, you know, do an end around international law. They're trying to make some claims that, you know, they have to pretend that um, they have jurisdiction. And you make a good point. This is the opposite of that. They're trying to make an assertive point. Basically saying, we are the U.S. empire. We control the world. Anyone who does anything in the world that even if it isn't a violation of, inter of international law, we can use lawfare and just of, of our laws at home or international law. We can use lawfare and simply say we've decided that it's a violation of whatever we say it's a violation of. We can grab you. We can bring you in and we can do anything we want. It is a, you know, basically mafia, thuggish mafia mentality that says because we have the power. We can do it. And that's all that it takes. So everyone out there in the world, beware. We got the power. Don't cross us or you'll pay. It's, it's more of an assertive, if you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. And it goes a step further, too, because not only is the U.S. saying you are not uh, you are are responsible for our espionage laws all over the planet, no matter where our, no matter what you're doing, we can prosecute you under our espionage act. Um, or our, our uh, Computer Fraud uh, uh, Act, which is the 18th charge, which essentially criminalizes investigative journalism going forward. Um, what they're also saying is that you get none of the protections 
uh, of any journalist or publisher inside of the United States, unless you're a foreign journalist or publisher who's playing ball. So very much like the mafia, if you're giving us a kickback, we'll protect you. We'll look out for you. But as soon as you cross the line, oh, you're done. Um, Marine Le Pen, they, there was a debate, a, debate, a debate two nights ago between mean, uh, Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. Le Pen, uh, in 2017, she crashed and burned in the debates and lost in a blowout. Now um, it is believed that she did okay in the debates, that it was kind of a standoff. I have heard those say that she, some people that would prefer that she win say she might, you know, she, she went a bit more to the center and she stayed away from anything, you know, really controversial for the most part. She's always portrayed as a, you know, the far-right nationalist, whatever the case may be. And if that is, in fact, the case, which it depends to, it tends to be, then to, from my perspective, it's the far-right against the far-far-right because, you know, we argue that, that, you know, there's an argument that Macron's a centrist, but the thing that they call centrism to me now is an ultra-liberalism, which is a, a form of fascism. So, at any rate, your thoughts on, I have some thoughts on Le Pen, but your thoughts on, on, on the Le Pen and on the French election? Well, Le Pen is at least a, a traditional nationalist in terms of, of where her, her conservatism is or where she is on the, the, the right spectrum. I agree that it would be like the, the right versus the far right or the far right versus the far, far right in the case of Macron. Macron is the, the ultimate technocrat. He, he is uh, the push-button tyranny is where he wants to get France. And you can see that over the way that he's handled the yellow vest protests and all of the lockdowns and all of the, the uh, protests that resulted from that. What Le Pen has going for her is that Macron is so universally unlike and really uh, did not, he didn't get elected the first time on all that much. Like it, it was very, very, very close. Um, the second time around, he stretched out a little bit more and wanted to get, but the first time it was very close because there were multiple candidates that were, you know, that nobody really felt great about, but everybody felt okay about their team. And that's kind of how Macron squeaked in. Uh, and so all it's really going to take is, uh, enough supply chain disruption or enough small business closure or enough cold, distant, technocratic treatment of a populace that has and has had legitimate grievances enough to take the streets for the last several years in a row over, I, she could get in regardless of whether or not she did well in this debate. You know, I think this is the, I'm going to call this the beginning. I believe that, you know, the EU leaders pushing for regime change in Russia, they're going to get their regime change, but not in Russia. That people in Europe, I don't know if they know or not, but man, there is an ill wind coming in uh, economically speaking. It's not going to be the Europe that they recognize within a couple years. And I believe that all of these leaders who are leading them down the primrose path um, are out. They're all out, and they will be uh, in all likelihood replaced by uh, right-wing populists, Trump-type right-wing populists. I believe they're all goners, and um, it's just a matter of time, and that this is the first, the begin only because, yeah, I, here's what I think. 
If this election was another month and a half, Macron would lose in a blowout because these uh, economics are going to it just this is just the very beginning of the economic pain that these people are going to feel. And if this was July or August, whoa, man, it wouldn't be pretty. At any rate, your thoughts when I'm of my argument about the future of politics in the EU. Well, I, I agree. It definitely looks like it's headed that direction It's being led by women, too, which makes it a little bit harder to criticize because you've got Christine Anderson over in Germany as well who has been making very, very good points throughout the last couple of years in terms of what she recognizes as the the neoliberal fascism that you had alluded to. Um, it, you know me, Garland. It, it, I, I'm not advocating centralized state power in any way, shape, or form. I don't necessarily think that replacing a a an adventurous global empire with a you know national corporate model is necessarily switching out a good for you know or a bad for a good um but the sentiment that's running throughout europe and has been for the last five six seven years has been one of an isolationist nature. We're done with the EU. The EU has done nothing but screw uh, the the regular working people over as a general sentiment. There's been more um, nationalist and isolationist rhetoric that's been not necessarily shaping up in a violent, abusive, or racist way, but in a if we don't get some sort of local control over our own supply chain, we're screwed way that uh, the, you can dovetail the two into a political movement that gathers up the busy, broke, low-information voters and the people who have a hyper-nationalist agenda that may be a little bit more fascistic in its own right and a little bit more uh, insidious. Well, you know, and I make this argument. If you say that the ultra-nationalists are fascism, which is a valid argument, I don't disagree with that. The ultra-liberals are fascism. What we're, what we're seeing now, in my opinion, is fascism. So you're looking at which one is the lesser of two fascisms or the different of two fascisms. Maybe one is a more, um, a more um, nationalistic, um, less interventionalist. But, to, you know, when people say, well, we're afraid of fascism in Europe, I argue you got it now. It just has a rainbow flag and a Black Lives Matter mask on, but it's fascism nonetheless. Let's go to, this is a great article, former intelligence officials citing Russia say the big tech monopoly power is vital to national security. It's mask off time there, uh, uh, Steve. They've just come out and said, look, man, we can't be giving up these uh, social media platforms because I mean, the CIA, the U.S., we use it to overthrow governments and all kinds of stuff, man. And so the um, these uh, some of the same intelligence officials who said that the Hunter Biden story had all the earmarks of Russian propaganda have reared their ugly heads again. Steve Porkin, in your thoughts? We we have seen that mask off is a great way to put it, but we have seen the complete uh, merger and exposure of the coming out party for the public-private partnership between big tech and government over the last several years. And it's manifesting itself in the way that, that a dying empire would. It's flashing out like a child who knows it's been backed into a corner. And it's saying, yes, of course we've got to censor. How else are we going to get our narrative through? The general fact, and I think we may have had this conversation before, that they have to go to these levels to censor people shows 
that their narrative is garbage, that people aren't buying it, that they're looking for alternative places to find information. We played a clip on the morning show earlier, just a couple hours ago, of Barack Obama uh, at a speech where he's talking about the need. He says, it's not even that disinformation needs to be believed, Garland. It just has to be. And it's an assault on the truth with a capital P. And the truth with the capital T, according to Barack Obama, is whatever narrative is coming out of whatever friendly outlet he deems to be, you know, worthy uh, of his propaganda at the moment. You are correct. You know, something I wanted to ask you about real quick, the, your thoughts on CNN Plus. Are you familiar with that story? <laughs> CNN Plus, yeah. 21 days. And, you know, some people are shocked that CNN Plus, uh, that they actually put that crap out and were, sh- and were surprised that it died. And here's what I say. These are the people who are right now contemplating, you know, we got Claire McCaskill, we got Amy Klobuchar, we got Pete Buttigieg. Who should we go through in 20, go to in 2024? Those three can't possibly lose. Maybe some combination of the two of them. So is it a shock that they would put this garbage out and then be scratching their head? Gee, I wonder wonder why people didn't accept it. Uh, Your thoughts, Steve? It's the William Henry Harrison of podcasting or streaming platforms, right? It lasted about the same amount of time. I just, I'm sorry if that's too obscure of a reference for some of the younger viewers, um, but at any rate, uh, you, you can, you can only fake authenticity so far, Garland, you know, this, you come from TV, right? Where the whole idea is to create a fake reality and to broadcast a, a manufactured, well-managed version of reality. That's not only advertiser friendly, but is going to keep people coming back for those adverts you know, keep the advertisers spending that money. So you've got to be able to sell all of it uh, as a a manufactured product. And when you're doing long form, you can't do that. You can't. If you're not an authentic human being, it just falls flat. You can fake authenticity up to a point. Tucker Carlson does a podcast that people watch. You know, um, Megyn Kelly has a podcast people watch. But that podcast where they tried to put Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen together. Garland, nobody watches that. Do you, do you remember what was it called? Air America? When they did yes. this like liberal? And I, I, I remember I was like, at the time I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'll listen to it. And I listened to it one day and I was like, yes. oh, oh, wait a minute. I'm not allowed to uh, sn- uh, to, uh, to to snore because that would be like enumerated by Z's. And I think we'll be thrown off if, if we if we sleep or something because of Z's. But right. you get my point. Air America was that. They didn't like think, well, per- possibly, perhaps we should give people some actual um, something that'll make them laugh or they'll like or they'll like it. They just like, yes, let's put forth our neoliberal and uh, boring uh, favorite people and the people are sure to love it. We're going to make sure that Al Franken's the comic relief and he hasn't honestly been funny. And that was all Davis is writing. Anyway, anyway Garland, uh, I want to thank you very much. This, this is this silly. It's silly and it's hilarious that they made Brian Stelter draw the short straw to come out to America to give the tweet to be like, hey, here's the article showing just how terrible we are at this because we're so desperate 
for the clicks and ratings that we have to produce content about how bad we are in order to get you to watch. Yeah, that is kind of a weird paradox that, you know, you, you put out <laughs> bad, bad uh, content and then you actually think we'll write a let, we'll write an articles. We'll put out content about how bad our content is. And then that's kind of like the steel dossier in a way, you know, you pay for the steel <laughs> dossier and then this guy, Chuck Nolan, gives the information to Christopher Steele for the steel dossier. Hey, at any at any rate, we've been talking with Steve Porkin. He's Porkinen. He's a national organizer for action for Assange. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. A Polish Jewish journalist has resigned after refusing to describe the Azov Battalion as a far-right extremist rather than neo-Nazis. Also, new evidence has been unearthed that the CIA found that Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman presented user-created data to U.S. intelligence agencies and CNN barely survived for three weeks. For more on these and other uh, stories, we turn to Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. And Dan Lazar, an estimated uh, investigative journalist and author of America. America's Undeclared War, as well as other books. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Well, 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 yeah, I was just saying, let me start here. We'll start with you, Jim. This morning, I was watching one of my favorite online shows, Alexander Mercurius, The Duran, and apparently a lot of people like it because it had 10,000 people watching this morning. That was an exciting show. The CNN Plus has some numbers. CNN had planned to sink $1 billion into the venture, hiring executives, producers, and on-air talent from other networks, and planning for CNN Plus to break even after four years. The service attracted as many as 150,000 subscribers in the first couple weeks, according to some reports, though others said a mere 10,000 people tuned in on a daily basis. I watched that on a YouTube show this morning. Start with you. What's up with uh, CNN uh, biting the dust after 21 days, Jim Cavanaugh? Yeah, I certainly, I, I had no, no idea that this even happened. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever CNN Plus is, and I don't know what the plus on this, they were probably planning some kind of premium CNN service. I have no idea what this was. It, it yes, went by you had to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Some premium service that you would, some people would be willing to pay extra for. But, you know, uh, clearly the, 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 the viewership of these channels is bad, and CNN, terrible, terrible, terrible. And what they think they were going to get, you know, people don't want to watch this. They, they hear it, and they've gotten enough of it, and they're not attracting new subscribers to this. You know, as you said, Alexander McCurris, I mean, who in the United States even knows who he is? But apparently 10,000 people a, a day do. Well, <laughs> Joe Rogan gets 10 times the, the, uh, the audience of CNN. So they're struggling to be relevant. And, you know, their their perspective is so narrow and so conventional that they're not attracting any new viewers and they won't attract any new viewers. So but it's incredibly spent three hundred million dollars to start this up. And we're planning on spending a billion. And now there's an element of this when you read the story that there's a change of management and that this was started by the previous uh the director of CNN before CNN was bought up by uh, Warner Brothers Discovery 
And the new guy doesn't really want to do this. So there's some element in this they have to be careful of, that the new, man- new management comes in and they'd like to do away with pet projects of the old management. But you have a, we do have, and it's clear, a crisis of, of relevance and viewership for, for these channels. Dan, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I, I agree, certainly. I mean, I, I think the CNN model is crashing. Uh, they are, they, had, a, they had, had a, some glory days with, uh, with Trump when, when the Democratic Party so they sort of became the, uh, the in-house uh, TV station for the uh, Democratic Party. And, you know, and as you know, every, every two seconds, there was another walls closing in segment about some bombshell that would do in Trump once and for all. Uh, but you know, post-Trump, uh, people have lost interest. I think Biden is a, is a, is a disaster. It's hard to stir uh, viewer excitement about Sleepy Joe. Uh, the new uh, Discovery um, uh, uh, Warner Brothers uh, Corporation, which is taking over CNN, seems to be uh, less enamored with those politics, more conservative, uh, pushing um, CNN in a less overtly pro-democratic party direction. Um, And so it seems that some kind of correction is in the wind. And if you put that together with Elon Musk's Twitter bid, then it seems that more conservative sectors of the ruling class are imposing some discipline on on the corporate media, uh, uh, taking them away from the Democratic Party, and steering them in a more Republican direction. Uh, and that may be the general direction that the overall winds are blowing. I also feel like this. The Overton window on mainstream media is between the, Demo- the, the corporate wing of the Democratic Party and the corporate wing of the Republican Party. That's about as far as you can go. And that somehow, am I reading too much into this when I say this reflects a cri- crisis of legitimacy in the ruling class? That these people are, these are the people in the back room. You know, they came up with this great plan and these shows, but these are the people who think that Pete Buttigieg and, and, and Amy Klobuchar and people like that and uh, guys. God forbid, Kamala Harris, that these are candidates that people that the people will be out there just cheering when they come out. So is it really does it also show something else where people are looking? This is what the ruling elite. This is what the ruling class, the power brokers think we this is what they want to feed us. Is this part of the crisis of legitimacy or am I reading too much into it? Well, you know, we are reading something into it. And as I say, this could be a a matter of change of management and pet project. But you know, the, the fact that they only got 10,000 daily daily views is really kind of a sign of something. And it's not just this particular incident that you're reading into. We're reading into this, the decline of the viewership of these uh, uh, these media platforms in general and people going to the Internet. And that's why they're trying to squash the Internet and censor the Internet, because people are going there for things they can't find and won't get everywhere else, and they don't want them to find that stuff. <laughs> well, you know, they're trying to, to, to make it impossible to go outside that Overton window, even on, this, on, on in the Internet, on the, open, the supposedly open platform of the Internet. So you do have, I think, it's, it's really, uh, uh, you know, a sign of the loss of legitimacy and the loss of personal relevance for people of what the message is in the, that's coming through the Overton window. Which is, you know, everything's great. We're best of all possible worlds. We, uh, you know, either, you, you know, uh, if we only, from their democratic point of view, if 
Joe Biden's president, that's great. If the Republican point of view, if we only get Donald Trump in again, it'll be great. You know, but this is not answering, not an analysis. It's not uh, a presentation of the world that, that interests anybody. Any, well, it does interest a certain segment, but only a certain segment. And they're going there. And you have this bizarre front. Look, there's more Democrats who watch Tucker Carlson than watch uh, Rachel Maddow. So you have, Carlson is willing to put people outside the Overton window on there. You know? And, and uh, so you have these, the, the places that are getting interest are places like Joe Rogan, places like Jimmy Dore, places on the, on, you know, uh, on, the, on the internet that they try to squash. And the mainstream message is not something that's going to grow and grow, grow an audience. You know, Jim, it almost sounds like you're trying to imply that the, um, the, that the way to turn things around for the Democrats in November is more coverage of January 6th. Because clearly that's the direction it's, it is going. Jim, uh, uh, Dan, let's, you know, here's something. This to me, and you know, I've been covering this for month, months, and the two of us have worked, you know, done a lot of coverage on this because this is a story that I find the big story out of Ukraine, the big story period is... What, and this is this is takes us in that direction. Polish Jewish journalist quits newspaper after it demands different description of neo-Nazi Ukrainian militia. One of Poland's most prominent journalists, Konstanty Geber, said he is quitting what many regarded as the country's newspaper of record after it demanded that he describe the Ukraine's controversial Azov battalion as far right instead of neo-Nazi. And to me, Dan, you know. This is the story to me that the United States empire is overtly supporting actual Nazis. I don't call them neo-Nazis. Neo just implies new. These are the old school ones. They trace their legacy to the real deal. And that the United States, and here's what I see on Twitter, and I see people screaming, Nazi, 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 this is unacceptable. I see the fight, and I think this is part of the censorship also, the fight. Actually, I got censored on Facebook for showing pictures of proud Azov battalion members holding up their Nazi flag. Um, that the U.S. has to fight and to pretend that they're not supporting Nazis when this is the fact of the matter. But let me add one more thing. Joe Biden literally said he was inspired by Charlottesville to run for president so he could support the Azov Battalion. Dan Lazar, am I overdoing things here? Not at all. Not at all. You're underdoing. <laughs> I mean, the, um, the, uh, the, I think this is the, this is the big, uh, the big story and the big scandal. I mean, essentially, there is a monstrous cover-up. Uh, and, and it's comparable to the cover-up uh, of, um, of the nature of the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan. The U.S. was, was uh, financing in the, in the 80s with the nature of the Syrian rebels and their ties to al-Qaeda that the U.S. is trying to cover up in the 2010s, 20-teens. Uh, and now the, the even more important cover-up is the nature, the role of, uh, of the Nazi element in the Ukraine. I mean, in a town that's a few miles north of Kiev, the regime just a few days ago tore down a, uh, a statue of, uh, of Zaya Kosmodemyanskaya, sorry for my, my abysmal pronunciation, an 18-year-old uh, Soviet partisan who was killed in late 1941 by the Germans, tortured, refused to, to provide any information, 
and then was executed. So the, the government just tore down her poster, and there were there were you know there were tweets hailing the destruction, calling her a communist prostitute, um, and at the same time it's putting up um, uh, statues and plaques uh, in honor of Stepan Bandera, the World War II collaborationist who killed thousands of Jews and also tens of thousands of Poles. Now, this is the, this is the story in a nutshell. The U.S. is backing a, a government which is increasingly influenced by Nazi elements. Um, and and, I, and, I, and this, this, I'm not making a pro-Russian argument here because I still oppose the invasion, and you know, and, and Putin certainly has you know far-right elements in his camp. But I'm simply saying that the U.S. is in backing the Ukraine is actively covering up the role of these not this of these Nazi elements, and that is a monstrous cover-up. So you know, so so you're right. I mean, I mean, Donald Trump in 2017 got in big trouble for saying there were good people on both sides in the Charlottesville demonstrations, both the, the ultra right and the, the left wing counter demonstrations. Yet, you know, and that supposedly inspired Joe Biden to run for president, Trump's comment. You know, but but the U.S. is like, you know, is, is now in bed with thousands of neo-Nazis whom it is providing advanced military training to. So what on earth is going on here? You know, Jim, I got to add something to this before I get to you. And that is the Azov Battalion, the Nazi Azov Battalion, was brought into, they were a, a um, on the outside being financed outside, after the United States overthrew the government and installed a, a, its own government. After that is when they were brought into the Ukrainian military as part of the U Ukrainian military after the U.S. So the U.S. and and might I add, it was after that that a number of very high ranking people, some of them who started many of these battalions, were brought into the government at the highest level. So it's not just that the, the U.S. government is supporting Nazis. It's that if we're really honest, the U.S. The, the, uh, government helped put together um, and empower a government in, in Ukraine in which these Nazis were a, an integral part of the power structure. And it seems to me it was simply, well, they hate Russians and Nazis hate Russians. So, OK, they're good enough for us. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, look, World War III is turning into World War II redux, you know. The, the, the Soviet Union, uh, the, Putin is not trying to reestablish the Soviet Union. But the Ukrainian right-wing fascists are trying to refight the, 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 and, and, and restore the victory of fascism over the Soviet Union in World War II. And that's their vision of Russia is, you know, it's racist. It's that German, that, that German parliamentarian who talked about Russians and crazy when they don't have the same idea of death. You know, they don't, 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 don't value life the way we do. You know, there's a whole set. You see these these Ukrainian media politicians, soldiers talking about the Donbas people. That they have to be exterminated. We're going to uh, we're going to exterminate them. This is really dangerous Nazi fascism, and it's political groups who 
celebrate the alliance with Hitler in World War II, tear down, as Dan said, statues of resistors against, against the Nazis. They go to the victory parades. This has been going on for years, since 2014. The victory parades, and they harass and beat up old veterans of the war against, uh, against fascism in World War II. So this is, these are people, and it's being hidden, who really are part of the mindset that existed in World War II among the Nazis. And they, have, they are allied with Nazi groups in Europe and throughout Europe and the United States, and especially in Europe, you know, Romania and Poland. These, if a victory of, this, of, of Ukraine now is going to be a victory for Nazism, and it will have, uh, it'll, it'll uh, embolden Nazis throughout Europe. It's a very, very dangerous situation. And uh, we, we are, you know, it's a terrible situation to see and to face. And as you say, this started after 2014. Before 2014, there was a lot of pressure from the European countries on the Ukrainian government, you know, repress and keep out Nazi elements and not to celebrate Bandera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Once 2014 happened, Boom. It was open, open season for Nazis. And they've grown from, and now the United States and, and, and Zelensky depend on them to win, they, to do anything that resembles a win in this war. Let's next move. Marine Le Pen, and this is very important for a number of reasons. Marine Le Pen um, avoids debate, debacle in race to oust unpopular Macron. That's a that's a Newsweek story. So they had the debate the other day. Marine Le Pen didn't have the, the I, I felt in 2016 that she totally just, you know, you know, uh, didn't do a very good job and ended up getting blown out. The circumstances are different. The and she seemed to try to lean into the main, main you know, main, main, uh, mainstream. I'm not a Le Pen fan by any stretch of the imagination. That being said, I think there are people that are very, very concerned with the drift of NATO towards some very dangerous positions. And I think what's going on with Le Pen kind of shows the future of Europe in that um, these Olaf Schultz governments, et cetera, I, my opinion, I think they're doomed. I think they're dooming themselves because as the economics get worse and worse, I think they're all out of here. It's just a matter of time. And um, it, let's talk about Le Pen. Uh, your thoughts, uh, we'll start with you, Dan. Your thoughts on where, what happens, where they are now, and what it means for the future of European politics. Dan Lazar. Well, it's it's obviously extremely important. I mean, I mean, under Macron, the uh, the, the the far right has gained in power. That's the important thing. I mean, uh, Macron is so unpopular um, that 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 he's been that in his time in his office, he's mainly succeeded in generating support for the uh, for the ultra right, and also, by the way, for the for the left in the form of uh, of Mélenchon, who I should have. Now, uh, so what you see in France is kind of a, a, a three-way polarization. You have the, the, the ultra-right uh, composed of Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen. Uh, you have the center in the person of uh, Emmanuel Macron. And you have the, uh, the, the left in, in, the, in the person of uh, Mélenchon. Um, and, uh, and it's the center, or the center-right really, which is identified with the war. Which you know, this war is really a center-right uh, project, and the the far right is in many ways alienated from it, and the and the and the and the left, the Mélenchon left, is ext- is is extremely opposed as well. So, um, 
it's Macron who's bearing the brunt of the displeasure generated by spiraling inflation. And the center is weakening. Now, Macron may, may still squeak by, but it'll be by a smaller margin than in 2017. And therefore, it'll still be kind of a win for Marine Le Pen. Um, and, um, and I think that I think what this, what this, what's happening in response to the war is that it's losing public support. Um, the, the center right is evacuating, it's weakening. Um, and this is happening across the board in France, in Germany as well, in Britain too. Um, this war is not a popular and, and people don't understand it. They're suspicious of the official reasons that are being given. Um, and, and the longer it goes on, I believe, the more unpopular it will grow. So in essence, I think that the, the center right, the Macron, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, uh, are are pushing their luck. They're 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 getting they're 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 getting ahead over their skis, and they're gonna wind up floundering the longer this conflict lasts. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, you know, I saw I read a, a, a report of the debate of the Macron Le Pen debate, and she essentially she praised Macron for his stand on Russia. <laughs> Uh, she's talking about being a little more uh, accommodating and trying to get along with Russia, but she is not at all, as far as I can see, she, in fact, you know, stood with Macron in supporting Ukraine against Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So she, I think, in doing that, gave up a little of her opposition, oppositional image and oppositional stance. And I think it's going to mean, you know, because that is something that now everybody has to compete. What is the what is the cost to us economically of going along with, you know, being a, an ally of Ukraine in this war against Russia? And what is the danger to us in terms of a wider war? And, you know, if you don't take a strong stance on that and you're going along with the powers that be and they say what's essentially the macro line on it, then you lose an edge. Uh, you know, if that's your position, that's your position. But as you know, we've been saying, I think there's a lot of reticence about this war and a lot of suspicion about it. And for her to be successful. And to overcome, because she's still behind, you know, uh, Macron, I think it would have been necessary for her to take a stronger, stronger differential stance than Macron on the war and on Ukraine. Uh, and I don't think she's going to succeed. But, you know, the, uh, the general notion that the, the, this center-right uh, conglomerate, which kind of has run European uh, politics in the 90s, certainly, uh, is, is weakening. No. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. And I think it's going to have unknown and uh, bizarre, and we don't know what they are, and probably dangerous side effects uh, uh, or long-term or mid-term effects coming up. Uh, and as this war, if this war progresses and becomes a wider war, then the whole thing blows up. Jim, I think strategically, and I'm not saying good, but I'm not taking a position on it. I think Le Pen looked at it and she said, you know, if you look at the numbers, and this is a thought, Okay, there are people that will or won't vote on me based on the war. There are people that will or won't vote vote on me based on the um, economics. So I'll lean away from the war a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, what you're doing in Ukraine, that's all good and fine. That way I don't lose a certain amount of people that are in favor of that. Yeah, because, because remember, she said 
uh, NATO ain't getting it done, and we want our sovereignty back from the U.S., right? She's made that clear. Okay, so if she says, yeah, what you're doing is fine on Ukraine, blah, 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 let me focus a little bit more on economics because that's where the real anger is. Strategically speaking, I haven't looked at the polls, but depending on the polls, that might not be the worst strategy. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, okay, well, I think, you know, that's sure she did. She did lean into that. She leaned into, you know, Economic nationalism, we're going to have jobs back, not, not making the people pay this price for, you know, carbon taxes. So if you're leading into that, and that, that does promise to have some success. But on the other hand, the, the French working class knows, I think, that the, the faction of the ruling class that Le Pen represents is not in there. It's not going to work in their interest in the, at the end of the day. It's like the Republicans. They can, it's easier, in fact, for the Republicans in the United States to do that than for the right wing in France, I think. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's something that, that she could win an election on it, but she's not going to, as you know, Donald Trump isn't going to deliver the work for the working class. Le Pen isn't going to deliver for the working class. So it's not something that, that, that's a, a, any kind of long-term solution for her or for the right. Dan, the CIA bombshell, the Sussman data was user-created confirmation of a frame job against President-elect Trump. We find now that the Sussman people apparently, you know, there's, there's a, 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 you know, allegedly he lied to the FBI and said he wasn't working for anyone. But we now find when he came with some so-called data to show that Trump was, that Trump's server was communicating with Russia, phones, whatever. Okay, here's the thing, Dan. We now find that he brought that stuff to the CIA and the CIA looked at it and said the technical data is crap. It's, quote, user created. So the CIA looked at it and they're like, eh, he made this stuff up. It, it's, he didn't even have real data. They made it up. And there were emails earlier implying that some of the people who came up with this data kind of said they might be doing that. Your thoughts on that, Dan? Well, it's a, it's a, it's not clear when the CIA reached that conclusion about the data, um, and I think that I think that was I think that I think there's a there's a there's a whole mountain here to be discovered, and we've only sort of like we're only like you know uh, picking at the, the very tip. Uh, um, the, look, the, the CIA and the FBI uh, had the Trump administration, you know, in you know going in circles. From before it took office, uh, the um, the Michael Flynn case, for example, is a, a perfect example of what, what went on. You know, I mean, Flynn was set up by the FBI. He was hounded out of office. Trump was forced to fire him, you know, in three weeks, uh, you know, and, um, and, and the whole thing was a setup clearly planned by the top ranks of the FBI. And the, and the CIA was leaking like mad. And what was clearly a coordinated um, uh, destabilization campaign, uh, and what Sussman seems to be showing is that the the, the Democratic National Committee via um, uh, the the uh, the Sussman, this lawyer for, uh, for who was working for the uh, DNC, um, had a hand in stirring the pot. Now, I think that. As time goes on, we'll learn more about this. But clearly, the the CIA and FBI were engaged in a major destabilization effort on the part of the Democrats. And it was not just to, to elect the Democrats. They saw Trump as a genuine national security threat. And therefore, 
one they had to mobilize against. And they felt they had no choice but to do it surreptitiously, because after all, Donald Trump was the president. So they embarked on a leaking campaign. They coordinated with the Democrats. Um, it, it was very far-reaching, and I think that Sussman has barely scratched the surface, and I am hopeful that we will learn a lot more uh, in the coming months. Jim, and I think because I agree with Dan, I've said that from the very beginning, and it was an operation that included the DNC, the Democratic Party, the FBI, the CIA, that Durham can't do anything but ultimately a Michael Sussman, a Kevin Kleinsmith, some lower people at the bottom get slapped on the hand, but he can, he's not going to be able to touch anything else. His job, I think, is going to be to clean it up. Um, your thoughts, Dan, uh, Jim Cavanaugh? Well, yeah, I, first of all, I agree with everything Dan said, and, and uh, I tend to agree with you, too, that these, this kind of uh, investigation is not going to go to Hillary. It's not going to get Hillary. It's like they didn't get Trump, but, and they won't even get as close to Hillary. You know, the, at the end of the day, they go after le- mid-level people. Uh, and, but it's going to, you know, it's hard. You know, again, you're seeing this, uh, these, things that, these snippets of things that come out of uh, Durham's, fi- Durham's, Durham's fi- filings, and you're not quite sure what they mean. seems to me that that, that phrase user-created data means, as you say, that they made up stuff. You know, this wasn't stuff they gleaned with a real analysis. It's stuff that they just stuck in there because it looked what they wanted, wanted it to look like. And that would be devastating. So it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. I think we will get a clearer picture of it. Uh, and it will confirm what everybody should know. Everybody, you know, we know, and everybody should know that there was a campaign orchestrated by the Clinton campaign and the national security state to go after Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. It's worth the Watergate. <laughs> you know, this is a, the, the use of, a, a, of the national security state on behalf of one political party to destroy the candidacy and the presidency of, a, of another, of, a, of, a, of the president. Uh, first of all, another political party in the campaign, and secondly, of the president. And, you know, it went on for f- four years, five years. And it's crazy, and we should be outraged about it. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's so much Trump derangement that people are not, I don't think it's going to uh, have that kind of, generate that kind of outrage on anywhere but Trump fans. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch and investigative journalist and author Dan Lazar. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. A U.K. court has ruled that Australian publisher Julian Assange can be extradited to the United States. Also, we discuss the neocon Russia haters who populate the Biden administration, big tech's cancel culture, and China's security deal with the Solomon's Island. For more on these and other stories, we turn to Dan Kavalik. He's a writer and author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. And Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thanks. Thank you very much. And Dan, I don't mean to uh, to short you a bit. Dan has many other books. That's just one of one of his many books that's quite relative to what we're talking about these days. We will start with Julian Assange. A British judge on Wednesday formally approved the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States to face spying charges. The case will now go to Britain's interior minister for a decision. And the WikiLeaks founder still has legal avenues of appeal. Um, I will take umbrage with the last legal avenues of appeal because I personally feel that this is lawfare and this is not being uh, addressed in a manner of law, but rather of politics. Let's start with you, Ray McGovern. Well, you're right, Garland. Uh, this is a charade. Uh, it was revealed back 10 years ago from one of the one of the thugs that works for Stratfor uh, that the idea was to keep Julian moving from place to place, from prison to prison. Uh, just keep them, uh, keep them on the move and out of circulation, and that would be the penalty he pays for telling the truth. You know, Julian's case is the personification of what's happening now in the media in this country and Britain and in others. Um, we're losing our First Amendment right. You know, it wouldn't be so bad if this wasn't such a basic right that the media, if the media weren't more important, as Edmund Burke, the British statesman said, more important than parliament and any other so-called estate, the fourth estate, okay? Well, it's dead now. And 10 years ago, it had a resuscitation in the form of WikiLeaks, a, an imaginative way to get stuff out quickly without being censored and without being irresponsible. That couldn't be allowed to persist. And so last thing I'll mention on this is, is very interesting from, from the new book by Niels Meltzer, uh, the uh, US rapporteur for, uh, for torture. Uh, he speaks Swedish. And when he finally learned what happened to Julian and visited him in prison and saw that he was uh, uh, mentally tortured, uh, he went to Sweden and he asked to review the police records that uh, showed how it was that Julian was trapped and how the Swedish secret police and the, the Swedish people who like to play around with Western intelligence services framed Julian and started this whole process of making sure that he was kept moving around from place to place where they thought he couldn't do any more harm. Well, he did more harm by telling more truth. And that's why they decided, well, no, we have to put him in prison now because we have to really clam him up. Now, the thing is that the the, the so-called journalists in the United States don't give a rat's patootie about Julian Assange. All they care about is making big figures, making big money by reading from the handouts they get every day from their management, which come directly from the State Department, CIA, and, and other federal agencies. That's what we come to. And those who take a different view, I don't know, Dan, whether you have been uh, knocked off Twitter or Facebook yet, but a lot of friends of mine, like uh, Scott Ritter, uh, like uh, uh, Pepe Escobar, really excellent journalists have. And so it's come down to you get kicked off. You can't even communicate via social media if you don't repeat 
the the predominant line, for example, now on Ukraine. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I totally agree. And I have not yet been kicked off these sites. But uh, but as you mentioned, some very good people uh, have. Um, of course, other outlets like RT have, have been uh, taken off many sites and RT America is now gone. Um, and so you have very um, little avenues to uh, news. And again, Assange, it really epitomizes this attack on free speech. You know, it has to be remembered, you know, he he himself has not ever taken any, you know, like uh, uh, classified documents from someplace. All he's done is collected them right from other people who might have done that, which is no more, by the way, than other like New York Times and other major outlets have used WikiLeaks uh, information to do stories. But as Ray says, they'll use those WikiLeaks uh, sources but they won't stand up for Julian Assange. Um, and his only crime is to gather and make available information that exposes uh, Western, not just Western, I mean, because he exposes Russian and Chinese misdoings too. But his crime, as far as the West is concerned, is that he's exposed Western war crimes, right? And misdeeds. And those are the very people that we need to protect, right? We, you, it, it doesn't do any good to protect the speech of people who just agree with the government, right? You have to – the people who need that protection are the ones who disagree with it. But now this has often been the case, but I think I've never seen a, a worse time uh, where people's disagreeing with the government is now equated with treason and – that is a dangerous time, and those are the times we live in. You know, I, I did want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, Caitlin uh, uh, Ray, Caitlin Jan- Johnstone has a has an excellent article in which she says the U.S. cries about war crimes while imprisoning a journalist, journalist for exposing its crimes. And I think it's critical that we actually touch base on what Julian Assange is, is in jail for, particularly at this time. Joe Biden has now, after Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, after uh, 300,000 dead in, in, um, in, in Yemen, the most horrific uh, humanitarian cas- catastrophe in the world, and at a time when he's literally starving people in Afghanistan by withholding um, funds that they have a right to buy food with, he screams... Vladimir Putin is committing war crimes and Julian Assange is in jail for literally exposing war crimes of the United States. Your thoughts on that, Ray? Well, Caitlin Johnstone, and you are absolutely right, uh, Garland. Not much more can be said about it. Uh, Joe Biden and his people are giving hypocrisy a bad name. Uh, I mean, you know, hello, here's uh, what's her name? Uh, um, Condoleezza Rice being interviewed. And a very profound interviewer says, no, Mr. Uh, Mr. Condoleezza Rice, um, U.S. Secretary of State, and you know uh, that when one country invades another, that's a war crime, right? And she looked right into the camera and said, of course that's a war crime. <laughs> well, what about Iraq? What about Afghanistan? You know, what about destroying Libya? I mean, the, the problem, Garland, is that Americans don't know this background. They don't know why we got into Iraq and that it was a deliberate, deliberate deception. And so not knowing that, 
they're led down the garden path to, to, to believe that Putin is a, a Satan of some kind or maybe just a Hitler and that uh, all this uh, drivel from the mainstream press about uh, about uh, Iraq, uh, Ukraine, and 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 Russia uh, should be looked with looked at with great circumspection, and they don't know how to do that, and that's that's the bind we're in because of what's happening to those who do know how to do that and have the strength to stand up, like Pepe Escobar, like Scott Ritter. Solomon Islands are in the process of submitting into place a security pact with China, according to an alleged leaked draft. It includes provisions allowing the Solomon Islands to request the presence of Chinese police and military personnel to assist in maintaining in social order, protecting people's lives and property, provide humanitarian assistance, amongst other things. There is a great hypocrisy here in that recently the U.S. Empire and various members of the empire have been saying, Solomon Islands, China signing a security pact presents a threat to Australia. And there's even been implications by some foreign policy so-called experts that the U.S. or Australia should take military action at a time when they're arguing that literally pumping U.S. military weapons for the last five, six years, seven years or eight, I think it was now, eight years into Ukraine on Russia's border, uh, uh, arming and training troops uh, for Ukraine, that was not a threat. NATO was clearly defensive. The hypocrisy is unbelievable, but I have to bring this up. The people in the Solomon Islands are very dark-skinned people and have what could be considered African-style features, and it certainly appears a, that's part of it, I would say, but B, you know, this is a, a very hypocrit- hypocritical act. Your thoughts, let's start with you, Dan Kavalik. Yes, it, it, it is the height of hypocrisy. First of all, as I understand, the Solomon Islands are about a thousand kilometers from Australia, so they're hardly next door. Not in the way that, for example, NATO is now very much next door to Russia uh, and has been for some time and now has missiles stationed in countries like Poland uh, aimed at Russia. Uh, Moreover, what happened in the Solomon Islands was that there were some attacks against Chinese companies and Chinese citizens. And it's this that um, led to China uh, requesting that it be able to have a role in securing the island and securing its own citizens. And Solomon Islands agreed to that. Uh, So this really shouldn't be seen as a threat to anyone. But as you say, um, in a very limited uh, circumstance, you have the security agreement, and that is seen as a threat. But Russia is not supposed to see what NATO expansion, uh, not supposed to see that as a threat, not supposed to see uh, uh, an army in Ukraine that has you know, neo-Nazi elements that's been attacking ethnic Russians now for eight years. They're not supposed to see that. As a threat, and it's that lack of empathy uh, that really informs our foreign policy, and and what, and it makes our foreign policy completely irrational and completely uh, cruel, really.
Ray, if you could comment on the Solomon, uh, Solomon Islands and also, if you could, on the on China and my belief and many people's belief that this the, the Russia war is it's partly about these people hating Russia. But to to the Russia haters, they've been waiting for this, you know, rubbing their hands together for years, the Victoria Newlands of the world. But there is another element of neocons who see this as something they have to clean up in order to and weaken Russia in order to get to the big brother of China. Ray, the Solomon Islands, Russia, China. Well, on the subject of hypocrisy, just to finish up here with the Solomons, you know, we are dead set on guaranteeing the right of any country in Europe to sign up with whatever alliance, whatever other country it wants to. I mean, that's a sacred right, <laughs> except for the Solomon Islands. And Dan appropriately points out that most of the Solomon Islands people don't look like us. Now, the real issue here is a strategic one. Uh, Dan points out, well, it's a long way from the Solomons to Australia or any good law-abiding white populace. It's a long way from the Solomon Islands to Hawaii, <laughs> more thousands of miles. <laughs> and and we're talking about a, a strangle up a, a a checkpoint where where the freedom of navigation would be endangered? Not at all. What we're worried about is that the Chinese put a couple of bases in there, or at least just a refueling station to empower their fleet, which has grown like Topsy and grown very sophisticated way. So um, the Solomon Isles is a really good example of how the U.S. is overstretched the uh, Solomon Islands people, some of them, most of them, apparently see the future with China and uh, don't want to deal with insurrections that may have been uh, prompted or assisted from outside anymore. Uh, and they, they mean to protect the Chinese citizens. There's a big minority of Chinese citizens there. So it all fell into place. And ironically, our uh, guru for China, the national security um, council staffer for China uh, and for that part of the world was due to go out to uh, read the riot act to the Solomon people. <laughs> and uh, this Chinese thing was, was apparently concluded with the Solomon people before he could get on the plane and off the ground. I have lost track of that. He may be there now, but I don't think he's going to be able to succeed unless he has some friends that cause a coup such as happened in Kiev I don't think he's going to be able to succeed in persuading the Solomons that no, no, your your future is with us, the West. Uh, we're we're you know we we prevail. We're the old imperialists who will always prevail. And besides that, we're white. Oh, you don't like the white? Oh, 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 so it's a problem. It's a real problem when you come down to the racial aspects of this, because China, Pakistan, India. And you can say Russia, the way it's been blackened by by our press here and by our government, they're all non-white now. They're all people of color. And there are more of them than there are of us whites. That's going to be a problem for the medium and for the longer term. 
Dan, and you wrote a book about the about this particular thing. Here's a, an article. It's from Press TV. Ex-CIA officer, that's Phil Giraldi, says Biden is surrounded by a band of rogues who want to destroy Russia. You know, right now, I think this is an example of this is what this country looks like when the neocons gain power, that the Biden, Biden is a neocon and is surrounding himself with neocons. And two things, their only agenda is foreign policy and world hegemony. And they have completely and totally neglected domestic uh, domestic policies. And the Democrats are scheduled, you know, set to get wiped out in November. But the neocons don't really care about it. They are simply saying, you know, let the people starve. If anything, the actual everyday working person is an irritant to the neocons because it gets in the way of their foreign policy and world hegemony. And at any rate, your thoughts on this, Dan Cavalli. Yeah, well, I agree, although I think there are divisions in the White House. Um, and it appears that as bad as Biden may be on these issues, that he actually may not want a greater conf- confrontation with Russia, and that, in fact, he's he's now seen as, a, as an obstacle by the neocons. And so I think it's not a surprise, for example, that uh, while for a long time the mainstream press, like the New York Times, was poo-pooing the Hunter Biden uh, computer revelations, you saw that recently the New York Times admitted, in fact, that those revelations were accurate. And I think that there is a move to want to sideline Biden because he doesn't – he wanted this confrontation that exists right now between Ukraine and Russia, but he does not want that to become a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. But as you say, there are neocons who want that. It also appears that the Pentagon doesn't want that greater conflict. And so they've been leaking information and trying to set the record straight and question some of the propaganda that's been coming out of the State Department, the mainstream media. So I think as activists, as, as, as people who care about peace, we have to understand those divisions and we need to press to support those who who are pushing against the the neocons. You know, uh, Ray, I'd, that, this is a, a good time. I'd like you to get your comment on that. And there was another interesting article that Ray sent me earlier. They must be out of their minds how the collective West is stumbling towards nuclear Armageddon, wherein it went from this with these crazy neocons around President Biden. to, And it also added in that the Russians have just uh, demonstrated a powerful new nuclear weapon and that, you know, are these neocons looking? That appears to be an attempt, I think, to send a message. But it is. At any rate, Ray McGovern, let's hear your expertise on all of this. Well, a, a word on uh, Hunter Biden. Uh, when the Russians released uh, the emails from his laptop, uh, there were others who released them as well. But here were the Russians doing that. It was the next day that Biden uh, let slip that, uh, you know, Putin really should be removed from power. So there's a an emotional element here. I think you said the Russians released from the laptop. I think you meant when the re- Russians released the bio lab and that um, Hunter that they had paperwork that Hunter Biden was connected to the bio, to the bio labs. Yeah, some of that yeah. was the bio lab stuff, yeah. but there was other stuff as well showing that Biden himself profited from these machinations that Hunter was doing. Biden himself being num- leader number one or whatever they call them. So, um, you know, there's a, uh, I haven't heard anybody uh, suggest this yet, except my, <laughs> except myself, but there's a, uh, 
A wag the dog possibility here. And uh, let me turn this thing off here. And of course, uh, you have uh, Biden realizing that he's under real pressure when Bill Clinton, uh, a good example for these purposes, uh, was under real pressure on Monica Lewinsky. What did he do? Well, he fired a couple of missiles and, and killed a lot of people in, in Sudan at a pharmaceutical factory that he that he made up or was making weapons of some kind. So there is there might be a temptation on the part of Joe Biden to throw discretion to the winds to get back at Putin for, you know, for actually getting at his family now. And uh, I agree with Dan that so far uh, the president has shown himself markedly reluctant to take any risks of a direct confrontation with Russia. But I don't know how how long he can withstand the increased pressures from left and right not to look weak, especially as the midterm elections come up in November. Here's an article I think we have, we really need to touch on, uh, you know, considering a number of things. Pepe Escobar, uh, who we mentioned earlier, was thrown off Twitter, and he says, cancel culture is inbuilt in a techno-feudalist project, conforming to the hegemonic nar- narrative or else. Journalism that does not conform must be taken down. We've been, you know, hinting around that a good bit, but your thoughts on that. Uh, uh, and, and he mentions this month, several of us, Scott Ritter, myself, ASB Military News, among others, were canceled from Twitter. The unstated reason we were debunking the official approved narrative of the Russian NATO Ukraine war. I think part of that, I got to say this. Their narratives are so kind of superficial and easily broken. They're very brittle that they have no choice but to defend them with censorship because any critical thinking and these things fall apart. Let's start with you, Dan Kabalik. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And I think that it's interesting. Of course, he he describes it as cancel culture, which I think is true. And sadly, you have people, liberals and even some leftists who seem to applaud the cancellation of such people, uh, because as you say, it, it puts into question this narrative, which on Russia that 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 liberals seem to be uh, clinging to. You know, they see it is so essential uh, to their worldview, and I think it's important to point out also because people say, "Well, yeah, but Twitter, Facebook, those are private uh, companies," and that's true. But when they're acting lockstep with the government in terms of promoting government propaganda while censoring uh, voices that are critical to the government, and be, uh, and when they act like public utilities, in fact, they're quasi-state institutions, and and therefore there should be that goes along with that uh, protections for people who dissent within. Uh, those spheres. And I think we need to fight for that. You know, there was this argument, you know, this attempt to have net neutrality some time ago that was defeated. We need to regulate um, these private companies, again, that really should should be treated as public utilities and they should be forced to grant a certain amount of, of, of freedom of speech to people. But instead, again, they are they are amplifying the voices of pro uh, government uh, people, pro war people, and um, they're silencing those that are critical, and and that is of great great concern. Ray McGovern, your thoughts on Pepe's piece? I think people need to uh, 
know the last 20 years of history, okay? <laughs> it's only 20 years, but that would suffice. Uh, the press, the media, cooperating with the government, was responsible for the war in Iraq. They repeated all the lies. And, for example, when the editorial page uh, director for the Washington Post, uh, he's recently deceased, his name was Fred Hyatt, when he was asked at uh, Columbia School of Journalism, uh, uh, Mr. Hyatt, now, uh, you kept saying for five, six months before the attack on Iraq that there were weapons of mass destruction. There was a flat fact. They were there. They were there. Now, uh, how do you feel about that now? And he said, well, um, I guess if, if they weren't there, we probably should not have said that they were. Oh, okay. Next question. I mean, hello, that was his answer. Now, Perry, with whom I used to work, commented, yeah, right, Fred, that's a sort of a cardinal principle of journalism. If, if something's not there, you're not supposed to say that it is, right? Now, what's my point? Fred Hyatt remained in that position for 18 more years until he died, okay? They're being going to have a big celebration for him next week. <laughs> A memorial celebration. Now, now, so the point is, no one was ever held accountable for the lies. And they knew they were lies they were getting from the government. And I had lots of sources, and so did others, that pointed out they were lies, but we couldn't get into the mainstream press. Uh, now, with respect to, uh, to how pernicious this is, uh, Russiagate. Now, it's finally available, the evidence that Hillary Clinton conjured up Russiagate. She had her lawyers try to figure out, well, so let's create some, some uh, contacts between the Trump campaign and a Russian bank. Let's do that. They were told, oh, we can't really do that. It's going to be, people see that through that. No, we'll do it. And it worked, okay? Then you know, there's Russiagate hacking into, um, into DNC emails, blaming that on Russia. Well, that's been totally discredited now. So it couldn't have been that Hillary lost that election all by herself, but that's the way it was. And they couldn't release this Russiagate narrative, most of which, most of which Americans still believe. So you come back up to this election, the last one, uh, and we talk about Hunter's laptop. What happened with Hunter? We knew about that a month or more before the election, what happened? Well, they knocked the New York Post, the, the oldest continuous publishing daily newspaper in the country. They knocked that off Twitter or Facebook. They, they knocked, they, they wouldn't say anything about Hunter's laptop because what it did to the major candidate. Now, it was really a crisis of conscience. And the only one that stood up and quit over it was Glenn Greenwald, whom I respect greatly. But that's how pernicious it is. If any election was affected by the media, well, it was that one, not because of the counting of votes, but because they deny, they, they deny the public the right to know how corrupt the Biden family is. Now, I don't think the Trump family is any, more, any less corrupt, but, you know, we should, we're entitled to get the truth and we can't get it anymore. And it's because you can lie and you can misrepresent things and no one, no one's around to hold you accountable. That's really pernicious. Yeah, well, and it's very interesting. You know, if you go back to the weapons of mass destruction, one of the big voices saying there was no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was Scott Ritter. Right. And here he is again a major voice in questioning the narrative uh, 
on Ukraine and Russia, and he continues to be knocked off of Twitter. So is a, is a very fascinating in that regard. Another guy that comes to mind, frankly, is is Seymour Hirsch. You know, here's a guy who won at least one Pulitzer, maybe two, uh, for you know he exposed the Mylai massacre, Abu Ghraib. This was, you know, he's probably one of the greatest journalists the U.S. has ever had. He can't even get published anymore in the U.S., right? He went from the New Yorker, and then he went to the London Review of Books. Now, the last thing I saw published was in a German publication, DW. You know, probably now he's, you know, he'll have to go to the Chinese press. You know, it it's really incredible. And I, again, I think it represents what's happened to U.S. journalism, essentially – it's become uh, uh, anti-journalism, uh, in the words of John Pilger. Uh, it's very hard to find a real journalist anymore, and uh, and that's why we're going to be lied uh, into the next war. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all a Monday evening right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out.